It is a beautiful day to be in the house of the Lord. I am, whoa, I'm tired. I'm excited. I am expecting. Y'all just seen the videos of uh, VBS. That just finished up two weeks of youth intensive activities. And so the week before that, uh, we were doing mission week, and we went to a few different places, uh, Temecula, Claremont, and Riverside, and uh, even downtown LA, the Homeboy Industries. And you know, we were doing missional activities. And we followed that up with VBS, and the theme was roar, but when life is good, God is good. And I was just thinking about that this morning, like yesterday, like, that's so cool that God is consistent through all of life's phases and changes and alterations. And so, like, think about this with me. We were discussing the children of Israel this week, and... I think it's just so fascinating that we were learning about the God who approached Abraham, he approached Isaac, approached Jacob, and he made these promises to them, and he came through with that promise. But here we are in 2019, and we're engaging in that same God. So that was the theme. God remains consistent throughout all of life's changes, throughout all millennia, throughout all decades, centuries. God remains the same. Now, we go through changes Look, I'm not even supposed to be talking about this today, but it was getting good to me. Like, God remains consistent. Hmm, and ever-present help. But like I said, I'm not here to talk about that this morning. I'm just really fired up about God and really tired because of God. We've been working. (laughs) (laughs) We've been working for real. Uh, Before Mission Week started a couple weeks ago, I was preaching again, and, you know, I didn't get my day off. The next day, there we were in Temecula. (laughs) landscaping. And it was funny because I had preached on digging. I preached on like field work. And God is just so funny because the next day there I was on my hands and knees in the dirt. And so it's like you have this high moment in God and you on cloud nine and he's going to bring you right back down. (laughs) So that's what's been going on with me. But today I have the privilege of discussing a very interesting passage of the Bible. It comes from Luke 14, 1 through 11. And, um, It's really just the topic, a story of humility and hospitality. And so we'll dive into that. But before we do that, everybody just close your eyes for a sec. I know we've been like very emotional today, very feely, but everybody just stop. Yeah, you feel that thing in your chest? That's your heart beating. And it's been going, whether you think about it or not. God is so good to us, you all. We want to be in control. We want to have power. But we are so powerless, so out of control of the things that matter. And so for a sec, just let your spirit connect. Just let your spirit reach out for God. Father God, thank you for right now, this moment. There's so much to thank you for, God. There's so much to praise you for, God. The scripture says that if we had 10,000 tongues, it wouldn't be enough to speak of your goodness. And that's so true. Your mercies are new every morning. And by your grace, we are not consumed. We are not driven mad. We are not driven overboard. We might be at the edge, but for some reason, God, we're still here, still holding on. 
So for that, we give you praise, God. God, we come to you right now broken as broken people, a broken community, a broken nation. We just can't seem to get right. But, oh, Lord, we thank you for you and your sacrifice and you being right and your love towards us, God. It's funny because it's really all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. But you are all about us. I'll never understand. We'll never understand the depths of your love and your grace and your mercy. In this moment, God, Holy Spirit, just blowing our hearts and minds. Speak to us, God, individually. Speak to us collectively. Speak to us personally and intimately, God. Yeah, Lord, you can talk to the multitudes, the thousands, and just be talking right at us. You're such a great, great, great God. And in these next few moments, I just pray that your word, God, you know, I've prepared something, but if, if your word doesn't go forth, God, then this is a waste of time. It's been a waste of my time, God. It's just a waste of our time. But if you will speak to us, God, and plant a seed in our hearts, then I pray that that seed will produce 30, 60, and 100-fold. So incite us, God, excite us, inspire us, invigorate us, challenge us. But yeah, God, help us to see more of your love and your character today. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I have a scripture up, please? Oh, it's over there. Actually, that's funny because I'm going to read it off my paper. Luke 14, 1 through 11. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him, was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked him, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, Will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat, please. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. So here yet again, we have another showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is a uh, reoccurring episode in the Bible. And we could spend a whole sermon series on the Pharisees and Jesus, for real. Their dynamic is very hard to trace. 
So if the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees was a Facebook status, it would most definitely be complicated. Most <laughs> definitely. You see, in broad strokes, the Pharisees are often planted as the bad guys. They're the antagonist to Jesus and his ministry. Even the word Pharisee has become synonymous with the word hypocrite, thanks in large part to Jesus's spirited and I'd argue legendary rebuke. However, I don't believe that that connection between Jesus and the Pharisees was easy to, to trace, to delineate. It's complicated, seriously. Their relationship is very, very muddy. So why was the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees so complicated? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Quickly, let's review some brief Jewish history. You see, the nation of Israel was exiled to the Assyrians circa 720 B.C., and the Babylonians circa 586 B.C. Now, God allowed Israel to be exiled for her hard-heartedness and consequently her hard-headedness, but it was the heart issue. The most tragic consequence of the destruction of the temple of God, I'm sorry, the most tragic consequence of the exile was the destruction of the temple of God because it was the focal point of Jewish culture, religion, and law. Everything ran through the temple. And so in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see accounts of the Jews' return to Jerusalem and the construction of the second temple. Now, this is post-exile. Now, second temple Judaism was much different than what Moses instituted before, you know, the exile. And this was because of the influences of the countries that they were exiled to, the Persians and the Hellenists. <clears throat> and so now second temple Judaism is separated into distinguished branches. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. These are just like interpretational houses, and people just congregated towards like-minded people. So it was like denominations. The Jews had denominations. Uh, but the Pharisees held the most religious authority. They interpreted the law of Moses to the Jewish community. In fact, based on their interpretation, the Pharisees determined who could worship and how to worship. And so this made them a highly exclusive caste with a vast amount of cultural and socioeconomic power. They were the power elite. With that in mind, they were extremely intimidating. So no Jew in their right mind would challenge the Pharisees. They are the religious authorities. And as the overseers of the temple, the Pharisees reserved the right to banish whomever from the temple. And so once banished, that person could not worship God or sacrifice to God. So banishment was capital punishment. It was probably the, 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 the worst punishment beneath crucifixion. It represented uh, a certain type of death. It was cultural annihilation. It was spiritual depravity. This was the worst thing that could happen outside of actually being killed. And so the Pharisees, they went unchecked for a good long while. But who better? Who other than God with us, Emmanuel, to have a word with these Pharisees? And at the dinner table, no less. So here we are. And I really, truly cannot stress the level of complication between the Pharisees and Jesus. Because neither side wants to commit to the other, but they can't seem to leave each other alone. So it's kind of like, do y'all like each other? Like, y'all be beefing in public, but y'all having dinners? Like... What? You know what I'm saying? We've seen complicated relationships. Y'all know. And so it's clear, though, that Jesus isn't a fan of the Pharisees. In Matthew 23 and 3, 
we get the PG-rated summation of Jesus' feelings about the Pharisees. He says, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Mm. Now, the rest of Matthew 23 is that legendary graphic rebuke. And in it, Jesus calls them everything but children of God. But overall, Jesus disapproves of the Pharisees because they have misrepresented and profaned the name of his God and his father. Yet, Jesus doesn't give up on the Pharisees because they are representatives. They are the representatives of God to the people and vice versa. So isn't it interesting that God doesn't snatch? We would think like he just come and just like take the power and like kick him out, but that's not how God works. I just find that very fascinating. And so the Pharisees, they're aware that Jesus is a bona fide, certified prophet. He's sent from God, but this man is different. It's more than just being sent from God. He is God. So the Pharisees cannot deny the power, the power group, cannot deny the power of the God-man. His miracles validate his claim as the Son of God, but the miracles that he performs on the Sabbath are particularly troubling to the Pharisees. He cannot be boxed in. He cannot be confined by the law, even his law. That's because he fulfills the law. Better yet, Jesus is the law. For the Pharisees, Jesus is really bad for their business. And this eventually led to Jesus's assassination. I think we call it a crucifixion, and rightly so. But Jesus was assassinated. They got rid of him because he was a real troublemaker. And so here in this passage, we're in the midst of another Jesus-Pharisees sabbatical showdown. So let's get into it. Verse 1, it reads, One Sabbath, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. carefully watched. And so watching here means interested and sinister espionage. That means that Jesus was under scrutiny. They were ooh, just waiting for him to say something wrong, do something wrong, to use the wrong fork, uh, to not use his napkin. They were just everything beamed in on them. And so this occasion is framed as a dinner, but it's not a safe space for Jesus. But this is no surprise to Jesus. So I'm interested to know, why does he accept the invitation to eat a meal with those who are out to get him? Why would he eat a meal with his enemies? Well, for starters, there was really no reason for Jesus not to go to the dinner. I mean, why turn down a free meal from a rich person? (laughs) I'm going to take that all day. But we can identify two premier character traits in Jesus that I think we would be better for adopting for ourselves. First, Jesus is serene. That means Jesus is cool, very cool under pressure. But it's interesting, there's nothing more trying, there's nothing more taxing than to be under constant and critical scrutiny. I mean, nobody wants to be around people who are always checking for them, always wanting them to dot every I and cross every T. That gets tired. But Jesus remains cool under pressure. The pressure doesn't get to Jesus because he is a man of integrity. Now, that just means that he is the same person in public that he is in private and vice versa. 
Furthermore, Jesus's confidence is rooted. Hear me. Jesus's confidence is rooted in his identity, his awareness and security as a child of God, particularly for him as the son of God. So unlike the common Jews, Jesus was unafraid and unintimidated by these Pharisees. See, isn't it good to know? Isn't it reassuring to know that God is not afraid of what we're afraid of? We're bullied. We see things all the time that may strike fear in our hearts, whatever it may be. That doesn't move God. God isn't moved by what we're moved by. Second, so the first is Jesus is cool under pressure. Second, Jesus never refused any man's invitation to hospitality because he never abandoned hope of men. So how can we expect to win over our enemies if we keep them 40 feet away? Like, y'all do that over there. I'm going to do this over here, and we're going to be good. And I know I'm guilty of that. I, that is, like, my first idea. Like, oh, things are different? Cool. We can keep some space between us. But it's not of the kingdom of God to tolerate people who have conflicting ideologies. And so this concept of toleration that we live into is not okay. And I think in the long run, we're deteriorating ourselves and the people that we're trying to avoid. So it's not the kingdom way to be cool with people who were cool with you. God always talks about that. What, what do you get in return for loving people who love you back? Love your enemies. So that's what Jesus is demonstrating here. Even though Jesus was clearly opposed to the practice of the Pharisees, for they did not practice what they preach. He was also concerned about the well-being of their souls. So it's interesting. They were scrutinizing Jesus, but Jesus was also scrutinizing them. I think Jesus is more disappointed at what the Pharisees don't see than what he sees in the Pharisees. I'm going to say that again. I think Jesus is more disappointed at what the Pharisees do not see, more so than what he sees in the Pharisees. The Pharisees are so busy looking for a problem with Jesus, looking for that little splinter in his eye, just, just beaming in on it, that they missed the problem that was glaring right in front of them. Verse 2 says, there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. So there was somebody at the party who needed help, a man with dropsy. The scripture says that he was suffering from his affliction while at the dinner. And so to Jesus, the man, his condition, his discomfort, and his lack of attention were all too evident. But the Pharisees missed it. So in verse 3, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is this lawful? The question might be better understood this way. Is there ever a wrong time to do what's right? This question of healing on the Sabbath was a recurring discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees found fault in Jesus performing miracles on Sabbath because it was the day that nobody was supposed to do anything. And this is according to the law of Moses. You see, all Jews were expected to adhere to every holy day. And the Pharisees held the notion that the true Messiah would not break the law of Moses in any way. And so usually they have much to say about this. Oh, why are your disciples tearing grain and why are they not washing their hands and you healing? Like oh, they had a lot to say, which is strange because it's like, bro, if you don't like me, why are you following me? 
Why you keep looking for me? But tonight was different. Tonight, the dialogue will be a monologue. Because verse 4 says, they remained silent. So this sound already sounds like an awkward dinner. That, they, that means they weren't talking to begin with. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And after a good amount of time of waiting for a response to that question, is there ever a wrong time to do what's right? It's like an awkward silence, like they, nobody was going to say anything. Jesus went on ahead and delivered the man from his suffering and sent him away. Verse 5, then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into the well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Now, Jesus is trying to level with them here. He's using ordinary examples to demonstrate the parallels between the work that they do and the work that God is doing. You see, doing the right thing will always be inconvenient. It'll be inconvenient to our plans, to our schedule. But the issue is, is that trouble is always, is never expected, but yet it's always present. So doing the right thing is inconvenient. But trouble is never expected, but always present. When we identify a need on the job and or in our homes and or on the street and or in the church, wherever you identify a problem in the world, God expects us to act on it accordingly and swiftly. Just as a parent would do anything to rescue their child or a beloved pet or animal, and I know some of y'all love y'all dogs. I've had some conversations about <laughs> doggy love. You know, you do anything to rescue your child or your pet from any and all danger in a moment's notice. So too does God demonstrate this urgency and concern for his children despite the day. So verse 6, and they had nothing to say, which is very peculiar. William Barclay, one of the people I was reading for this, he, he wrote this. He said they had a zeal for legal debate and for keeping, the, uh, keeping alive the tradition of meditation and study of the law. They had a zeal for talking. They loved to hear themselves talk. But their lack of response here definitely indicates that they were legally stumped and that they were struggling in their hearts. Now, don't forget that. It's always a heart issue. They were struggling inside. Maybe some were thinking that, hey, Jesus, you right, man. I saved my dog last Sunday, dog. I ain't, you know, ain't going to play. Like, I did that. But the problem was they weren't going to confess that in order to stay within the in-group. Or on the other hand, some might have been thinking that, no way. Mm-mm. My child could fall, my ox could fall, and if the law says not to do something, I'm not going to do it. Now, that's just dark, and that's not why the law was given. And so both sides have a lot of healing to go through. So even after having their heartstrings pulled on, the Pharisees remained stoic and unyielding and insensitive to God's plea. So now things are awkward for the Pharisees. Their dinner was not going as planned. Some scholars believe that the man with dropsy was planted into the dinner. And after that happened, Jesus sent them away. It was like they had nothing left. And so between me and you, I feel like at this point, Jesus is as comfortable as he's been the whole dinner talking about, can you pass me some more of that punch, please? <laughs> Having a good old time. Yeah, let me get some more of that. What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about dessert, asking for dessert. You see, one commentary suggests that as the guest of the evening, Jesus sat in the highest place 
at the right hand of the host. Where is he sitting now? Uh -huh. And was expected to start the conversation. So that's what Jesus did. So verses 7 through 11 reads, we're going to blow through it. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. Do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come into you and say, my bad dog, uh, but uh, you see that person over there, I need to see for them, which is humiliating. So then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, what you doing here? Come on, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, none of this sounds like the other parables that we've explored throughout the summer. However, the Greek word for parable has seven different meanings in Hebrew. Now, this type of parable falls under the Proverbs category. So Jesus is disclosing wisdom to the Pharisees. He's literally schooling the experts. He's schooling them. And his intent and his message is similar to that of the wisdom literature, how to live a successful life. Earlier, Jesus taught them to do good whenever the opportunity approaches, because there's no law for that. Now, Jesus is explaining how to do the good in humility. Jesus literally tells them to intentionally take the lowest seat, avoid it, don't just sit in the bottom place, go straight there. Because the only way you can go from the bottom is up. So even if you only get to move up two seats, you're going to receive a little honor. You're going to receive two seats worth of honor in front of everybody. If it's 20 seats, you're going to receive 20 seats worth of honor in front of everybody. Again, the only way from the bottom is up. So obviously, this is something that the Pharisees haven't learned in all their studying. You see, the Pharisees don't even know how to be real friends with one another. Individually, they want to assert themselves over members of their own clique, of their own circle. It's really sick if you think about it, to be distinguished from the distinguished. But let me tell you, the brown Mercedes is the same as the black Mercedes. It doesn't make you any more special. But that's the problem with cliques. They are built on and fueled by unhealthy competition, jealousy, backbiting, shallowness, superficiality, lack of personal identity and self-worth, fear, gossip, pride, and arrogance. I don't think this is an exhausted list either. And in the kingdom of God, loving relationships, lasting relationships, eternal relationships are not built or sustained this way. You see, the Pharisees are more concerned about where they sit at the table rather than what they actually bring to the table. See, there is nothing wrong with honor. There's nothing wrong with being honored or honoring a person who deserves it. However, there is a problem for seeking out honor for yourself. Receiving honor should not be the motivation or the driving factor for what we do, especially the honorable things. To receive honor is not a reason to do honorable things. And that was the Pharisees' problem. They were doing the law for the wrong reasons. And now in a moment, we're going to come to the table of the Lord. Today is first Sunday, 
and we're going to have communion. As you can see, the elements are here. We're going to come to the table of the Lord. Now, there is no way that you can approach his table talking about, I want that seat right there. There's just no way to do that. And it reminds me of James and John in Mark 10. It says that then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your glory. But Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. And Martin Luther King Jr. discussed this in one of his more popular sermons, The Drum Major Instinct. And you see, we all have this instinct, this desire to be seen, this send me attitude, this chivalrous, brave, we all have it. It's the desire to receive praise. It's the desire to step out in front and be distinguished. And we all enjoy being acknowledged and affirmed, and that is quite all right. God put that in us. But in this materialistic and superficial society in which we live, that instinct can easily be warped into conceit, vanity, and arrogance. So in closing, and in sum, what can we take away from this passage? Doing good is okay. It's better than being bad. Don't be bad. But being good is the goal. Being good is the goal. And this is the problem with the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees misused and abused their power for their personal and collective elitism and affluence. The Pharisees had the power to do a lot of good but their character and integrity was too corrupt. The Pharisees were so busy looking for the splinter in everyone else's eye that they missed the law in their eye. It's not about where you sit at the table. It's about what you bring to the table. And really, what can we bring to the table but all of us? Bring yourself to the table. Bring your pain. Bring your trauma. Bring your heartache. Bring your worries, but be sure to also bring your gifts. Bring your personality, bring your laughter, bring your skills and your passions. Bring all of you to the table because that is how much of you Jesus died for, for all of you. You, that child that was stuck in that well who God risked everything to save, all of you. You, that one sheep who God leaves the 99 for to rescue all of you. You, who are fearfully and wonderfully created in the image of the living God, bring all of you to the table. You see, in God's kingdom, we don't worry about our own seat because we are too concerned about our neighbor having a seat. And isn't this demonstrated by our leader, by our savior, by our king? Did he not relinquish his seat his throne, to go down and make room for you in his kingdom? Lord God, how excellent is thy name. You who gave it all to get all of us. God, 
You, if there's anybody who should be arrogant or prideful or feel some sort of clout or have the big head God, it should be you. But you are not that way. God, thank you for not being like us. God, thank you for not being who we think you are. God, you gave it all so that we can have the opportunity to give it all. Help us, oh God. Help us to be good. Not to do good, not to say good, not to think good, but be good, God. Purify us. Create us. Create in us a clean heart, oh God, and renew a contrite spirit in us. Cast us not away from your presence, oh God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.